The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good morning. In meditation practice, one of the things I find helpful to remind myself is that the direction or the movement of practice is about opening up, opening more and more, including more and more. Um, And this, in a way, runs counter to maybe our tendency to um, aim for something in particular, some particular kind of state or some particular kind of um, realm where there's no, maybe we're looking for something where there's no thought or no difficult emotions or some kind of... um, unique, special, um, something. (laughs) We all want something special. (laughs) And, um, And so in meditation practice, sometimes we say the more we open and the more we include everything, um, it's like there can't be distractions because there's, there's just the activity of the mind. There's just the sounds outside and the sounds inside, the thoughts, the images, the, you know, all the, all of the contents of our experience. And so for meditation, it's not about getting rid of the content, but maybe it's more about seeing the nature of the, of, of what's happening, seeing the nature of um, sound, so the nature of thought, and um, so when when we um, when we get that, when we when we remember that shift, that it's not about changing our experience, but it's about understanding something in our experience. Um, that's called insight. That's the insight of insight meditation. And it's said that the primary insight, or you know, um, and we can say the primary insight of insight meditation is this understanding that whatever has the nature to arise has the nature to pass away. Whatever has the nature to arise has the nature to pass away. So anything that we can experience in this body and mind is something that has arisen. You know, um, and I mean, this is so simple, you know, and it's so, um, in a way, it's like, that's it? You know, it's so obvious. Um, That something is here means it will, at some point, disappear. And... um, so a couple of days ago, we had a, um, a nice one day sitting here on this topic of impermanence. And um, 
And so I'm going to talk a little bit more about impermanence. I'm to talk about five hours about it <laughs> Saturday. But instead of talking so much about it, I thought I would share some poems about impermanence. And the idea that um, something about poetry maybe captures the richness of this human encounter with impermanence. Um, The Pali word for impermanence is anicca, uh, meaning transience, meaning change. Um, And it it implies something about the the unstable nature of experience, the 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 changing nature, the unstable nature, in a way, the unreliable nature of experience. And this is, um, you know, in a way, the invitation of Dharma practice is to um, encounter this truth, encounter the truth of change, and some way align ourselves with it, in some way come to harmony with it, harmonize with it, come to peace with it. And not only is it said that if you come to peace with impermanence, um, things will be better for you, or something like that. It said, this is the greatest happiness. This is the greatest peace. The greatest joy is to somehow encounter this truth and um, let go into it in such a way that we open to something beyond it or something beyond ourselves. Um, so I just, I just uh, selected a few different poems that I thought kind of, you know, illustrated something, um, something about the poignancy of meeting this truth of change. Um, In meditation, we may begin to notice that um, the thought I had a minute ago, an hour ago, 10 seconds ago, is gone. You know, the sound that was here, the thing that was, you know, either pleasant or unpleasant um, is now gone. This is called January 4th. Maybe it's from a diary, I don't know. And suddenly, a memory of birds that sank into the unknown. And suddenly, a memory of birds that sank into the unknown. Um, So we start to notice our experience is something that comes up and then it sinks into the unknown. It returns to where it came from. And, And... the idea is that the more we are able to just simply sit with this, simply sit with the changing nature of the contents of our mind, um, 
in a way, this teaches us something about how to be with the contents of our life, how to be with the impermanence of relationships, the impermanence of, you know, all the other circumstances in our lives, the people who come and go, who are born, who die, and, and, and all of the, um, the richness of emotion around that. There's a way that our meditation, our minds, is like a laboratory for seeing change. Um, we called the the um, the workshop on impermanence "Clouds and Water" from the idea that in in Japan, maybe in other countries, a novice monk is called Unsui, Un is cloud, and Sui is water. So a clouds and water person. Um, The nature of water is to flow. The nature of clouds is to drift. And there's something about um, when we practice Dharma, when we practice meditation, there's a way we become like flowing water. We become like the clouds that drift, um, whose nature is movement. Um, so, and I think one of the um, One of the interesting things about clouds and water, one of the interesting things about this seeing, seeing, seeing the nature of things as movement or seeing my own nature as change is um, rather than making us feel joyful and peaceful and happy, it, it often has a flavor of sadness. You know, it might have a flavor of um, you know, there's something a little bit lonely about the fact that um, the true home of water, we could say, or the true home of clouds, is their movement. There's nowhere where they stop and rest and get cozy and, <laughs> you know, build a fire and, you know, And I think this is one of the, I think maybe this is one of the primary barriers or barrier or boundary or something that we go through in this encounter with impermanence is how can I be safe in a world where everything changes? How can I be secure? How can I be happy? What can I depend on? So, um, I always find it interesting to reflect on the story of the Buddha's life that, you know, that, that we've been, that, that we've inherited this story, this, you know, I don't know if it's a myth or if it's biography or, or what, but it, it's, it feels meaningful that um, 
Gotama, the person who would become the Buddha, um, he lost his mother when he was two years old, you know, and experienced this um, uh, you know, such a such a profound loss at such a young age. And maybe there's something about um, this kind of encounter with impermanence, loss in some way, some kind of, and it, it, it might be the loss of a person or a parent or a loved one. It might be, um, you know, um, some other kind of disruption in our life that in some way upsets a picture of who we thought we were and what we thought life was. And the gift of this loss, maybe, is that it's something that brings us to practice. It's something that puts us on a search. It's something that, um, you know, we... we we, we start looking for, for you know, what is this about? You know, so, um, so, so, so the Buddha's mother died when he was two. And um, I've noticed that among, um, I, you know, probably in, in, in many spiritual traditions, but certainly in the Buddhist tradition, many of the, um, what we sometimes call the ancestors, you know, the, the teachers who've come before us, who've sort of um, transmitted the Dharma and passed the Dharma through the generations, have experienced um, me- deep and meaningful loss when they were young. There, um, is a, there was a Buddhist priest called Isa, might have heard of Isa, I think Kobayashi Isa, who was considered one of the great haiku masters in Japan. And he, um, he lived about 300 years ago. And so his mother also passed away when he was um, two or three years old. Mother I never knew Every time I see the ocean, every time, you know, mother, I never knew. Every time I see the ocean, every time. And what I love about this, um, this tradition of poetry, of, of practitioners writing poetry, is a way of sharing a moment or sharing one's heart that is so human. You know, it's not that now that I'm a practitioner or a monk or a Zen master or whatever, I'm, I don't feel loss. I don't feel the poignancy of impermanence. Um, something is let in maybe and appreciated in a deeper way. Um, One of Isa's most famous um, haiku also um, 
deals with loss. This world of do is a world of do. And yet, and yet, sometimes this is translated as this do drop world is a do drop world. And yet, and yet. And I, this is kind of a famous haiku. And I've always liked this haiku. And then it became more meaningful to me when I learned that um, Isa had wrote this upon the death of his young daughter. You know, and he, I think he had been a traveling monk and a poet and later in life, in his, maybe his late 50s or early 60s, he married and he had a, a boy who passed away when he was one year old. And then a few years later, they had a baby girl and the baby girl passed away. And then he wrote this, this poem, this world of do is a world of do. And yet, and yet, um, you know, the world of do is the world of change, is the world of um, instability or uncontrollability. Things are in some way beyond our control. Um, And then this, even, even knowing this deeply, or maybe because we know this deeply, this, and yet, and yet, and yet we still uh, sob. You know, when something touches our heart, we still, we still feel, um, the loss. In a, in a little bit of a similar vein, this is another Japanese poet, Ryokan. Although from the beginning I knew the world is impermanent, not a moment passes when my sleeves are dry. Although from the beginning I knew the world is impermanent, not a moment passes when my sleeves are dry. You know, so, so this is um, I go back to this opening, opening up and including um, you know to, to practice with impermanence is to include all of the emotions that um, that it brings up and to give ourselves permission to feel them, to experience them. Um, There's a wonderful kind of safety in that. And it's interesting about the Buddha's life that so he experienced this loss at a very young age and then in his childhood was um, the, the sort of defining feature of his childhood was um, being completely protected and pro- completely shielded from um, the nature of, of change. You know, so he was 
um, a prince who was in a palace and who was never exposed to aging, to someone who was very old, to any kind of sickness or to death, to, you know, to uh, the truth of, of death, of, of mortality. And as a parent, I can identify with this a little, you know, this sort of wish to um, shield children from painful things or from um, difficult things. And in, in, um, in the story of the Buddha's life, he somehow encountered, you know, as a teenager, he encountered, um, he left the palace grounds and he encountered a very old person who just aged very, very, very old. And he was shocked. He said, what is this? What is, you know, why is this person like this? And then he encountered illness and a person who was sick and who was suffering and who was in physical agony. And again, he was startled and stunned and then he encountered a corpse. And it's said that these three, old age, sickness, and death, are messengers, or kind of um, messengers. Some, you know, sometimes they're called heavenly messengers, or the mes- messengers of, um, of the truth of things, of the way things are. And in seeing those, it, it it awoke, awakened something inside the Buddha to be and sent him on his search. Um, and in, in terms of um, Dharma practice, these messengers, one of the places they appear is in reflections that the Buddha offered. He said that um, these are the five facts that one should reflect on often, whether one is a woman or a man, lay or ordained. And they are meant not to depress us, you know, not to sort of bring us down and, um, but to sort of awaken something in us in the same way that the Buddha was awakened by encountering these, these messengers. I am sure to become old. I cannot avoid aging. I am sure to become ill. I cannot avoid illness. I am sure to be, to die. I cannot avoid death. And then the fourth is, I must be separated and parted from all that is dear and beloved to me. Um, you know, so these are sort of these four manifestations of impermanence in our life. And then the fifth is the practice piece of what we can do. What is our role in this? You know, are we at the mercy of impermanence? Are we victims in this kind of whole scheme? Or is there, is there something we can, we can do that we can practice? So here's the fifth one. I am the owner of my actions, heir of my actions, 
Actions are the womb from which I have sprung. Actions are my relations. Actions are my protections. Whatever action I do, good or bad, of these I shall inherit, or of these I shall become the heir. And, and what I really like about this is how empowering it is, you know, that it's, um, we, maybe one of the gift of, of, of Dharma practice is helping us to see that in each moment we have a choice. One of the gifts of mindfulness is helping us to see, helping us to make space um, in this mind that's so is so conditioned to just react that oh there's a choice here if I take a take a moment yeah, there's a choice in how I respond to anything how I respond to each moment and so um, actions are my protection. Um, how I act, uh, how I respond to uh, the moment, how I respond to others will either bring suffering for me, bring suffering to others, or bring happiness, bring, bring, bring a sort of release. Um, and what I like about the Buddha story is that he... So these messengers, they sent him on this quest and he left the palace and he left his, his um, inheritance um, as the sort of son of the king. Maybe this would be like, you know, I don't know, Donald Trump Jr. becoming a... <laughs> becoming a monk and shaving his head and going to serve the homeless or something. Um, he left his family and his sort of, you know, um, uh, karmic life, you know, his karmic conditioning and um, went through a lot of very extreme and painful um, practices and and this is something I also find poignant you know this sort of search and not necessarily s- so skillful you know so like I think as the story goes at first his search went through sort of just maximizing his pleasure you know and maybe or maybe that was part of when he was in the palace or something but just of like if I can only increase the number of pleasant moments or moments of pleasant sensation in my life, that will bring happiness. You know, it's sort of like binging on ice cream three times a day or, I don't know, going to Las Vegas or something. And so he went through that phase. Then he went through the phase of um, starving the body, doing very extreme, austere practices and and that wasn't really working either and um, in a moment when his body was very weak he remembered a time when he was a child 
And uh, as the story goes, he was remembering a time when he sat under a tree, rose apple tree, and he was a young boy. And he was so happy. And there was this joy that just bubbled up in him. That was, uh, it didn't come from trying to do something, trying to get something, trying to change anything. It was this sort of letting go into a kind of uh, ease and joy that was fundamental, that was, that was sort of intrinsic to who he was. You know, and I think, I think we've all know moments of that. It might be just laying on a bed and reading a book, sitting in the garden, or doing some activity that we love doing, that we sort of lose ourselves. And this joy, this joy of just being alive, this joy of just um, of, of opening to the moment without any agenda, without any aim of controlling or fixing or making something happen. So he remembered that. And he said, oh, maybe that's the way to go. Maybe that is the key or there's something in this letting go, in this... Um, this, the simplicity of being. And then it said that he meditated on that, or he meditated in that way. And that was the night that he woke up. That was the night that he became a Buddha. Um, so there's something about um, what I love about this this practice of being with impermanence, of opening to impermanence, is that at some point it involves a letting go. It's like when you're in nature, someone was, we were talking on the other day about what, are the way, what facilitates, what supports this sort of coming to peace with impermanence. And someone was saying that um, for her, being in nature, there's something about nature that is, especially when there's wide vistas or walking in the forest, when there are so many things happening and so many things moving. And it's like we, the illusion that we can control it, the illusion that we can improve it, the illusion that we can somehow fix it, um, you know, it's, it's, so, it's so beside the point, watching the waves. It's like you're watching the sunset. Um, it's beyond us in a way, and so we can relax. We can relax and we can um, flow, flow with it, flow into it. Um, so in our in our, um, in our day-long on impermanence, I talked about a few, in the guided meditations, a few different approaches to um, meeting, meeting this truth. One is the benefit of relaxation, the benefit of learning ways to relax the body, relax the mind. And it's such a support because I think that there's a way that we part of our physical tension is a mental contraction and is a mental sort of barrier 
against, maybe against the instability of change. So um, that of re- learning to relax, deepening the relaxation is, is, a, is a support for meeting impermanence. Um, and the second way I talked about it is um, the paradox that the more still and stable the mind is, the, the easier it is to perceive change. When our mind is very agitated and our mind, there are a lot of thoughts and we're caught up in our thoughts, um, the world feels more solid. The world feels more fixed, especially the things we don't like about the world, the things we don't like about ourselves. All of our problems seem more real, more intractable. Um, and the more the mind st- settles, the more we can come to stillness, the more we can perceive the flow of things. And it's very interesting, just the relationship, and just to notice, you know. Um, and one of the things that supports stillness is um, working with a particular object in meditation, like the breath, you know. And um, in a soft way, in a relaxed way, if we can gather the awareness or gather the attention on something like the breath, it's like that rhythm, that movement of the breath tends to be very calming and supportive of stillness. So those are just a couple of, 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 of things. I, I'm remembering a line that I heard from one of my teachers and he said that sometimes when life is going well, we conveniently forget about. <laughs> I don't know if we forget about impermanence or we, you know, when change happens the way we want it to, then we sort of take credit for it. Oh, well, <laughs> maybe I, I, I did that or, I can, you know, or, or something. But then he said something like, and then there are times that life rubs our noses in, <laughs> rubs our noses in impermanence. And, um, and so it, it's, it's very useful to have a practice, to have a way of meeting impermanence so we're not knocked down by it. There's a, there, there's a way that we, we understand something that, that in its fundamental sense, it's not a mistake. You know, change is not a mistake. It's the nature of things to change. Um, and um, and I think as we let go into into the flow of things um, that's where the joy comes up that's where the peace, that's where the, the happiness is that to see that things change, but also that I change, my nature is change. I don't have to protect, I don't have to build that wall so high to, to protect myself from things out there because it's the same, it's the same nature. And, and then what a relief, you know, what a relief. Um, 
maybe I'll just end with this, um, what I always find so helpful, this, this visual of um, this, this story of jumping out of an airplane. You know that one where you know, a person is, is jumping out of an airplane and you can, I've, I've never done this myself and I, I don't think I ever will. <laughs> um, but you can kind of imagine to take that leap out of, to step out of the airplane into the unknown and this freedom of weightlessness, this freedom of just soaring and floating and without that, that, that familiar weight of gravity, you're just in space. And so okay, so the person jumps off and is having this, this, this wonderful freedom, sense of freedom. And then at a certain moment, they realize that, you know, hang on, there's sort of <laughs> the law of gravity has not been, um, you know, permanently suspended. And then they're kind of hurtling towards earth and, and they realize that they don't have a parachute. And you can imagine the terror that would come up with, with that realization from this incredible freedom of weightlessness to this, this fear of, you know, I think I know what's happening and this is not good. Um, and... And then the piece I love, and I think which is, is the piece of this deep um, insight into impermanence is to see that, um, yes, I've stepped out of the familiar, I've stepped out of the airplane, and yes, I don't have a parachute, but at a certain point we realize that um, there's no ground. You know, there's no parachute and there's no ground. So it's like, oh, and it's like this relaxation into the flow. Um, when, we, when, we're, when we sit with a lot of tension, a lot of mental tension, a lot of physical tension, and this is just my own experience, and there's a, there's, it's like a way that I'm bracing for impact. <laughs> you know, it's like, something's going to come up or something's going to happen or something in the mind or in the body that will be difficult, that will be unpleasant, that will, um, how is this going to change if it hasn't already into something I don't like? And this, you know, this insight into groundlessness. Um, so, well, thank you very much. I, um, I wonder what you, you know, we have a few minutes. Any, any thoughts, questions? Um, yeah. I just couldn't agree more about um, opening up to nature mm. as far as being on a trail in the wilderness and you have to look at yourself and the intentions of why you're there, what you're doing as far as... And in doing that, you have to open up and trust and love yourself because on the mountain, you're part of something bigger, bigger mm-hmm. change. And um, 
And that's a very good plateau to practice, you know. But uh, I couldn't agree more with everything you said. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. I think it's not a it's not an accident that so much of um, there's so much nature in 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 in, in the, the stories of practice in the places of practice mountaintops and you know there's something about that 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 can shift our perspective. So thank you. Everything you you spoke about really resonates with me because I'm going through a major change in my life right now. And this morning I woke up and having a conversation with the Buddha, I said, um, why is this happening? What 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 should I expect from this? Because I've had heart surgery. Mm. I've had a brain tumor. I'm recovering from... Um, a, a stroke and I lived through all of that and I thought what do you have planned for me <laughs> <laughs> and, and I said I can I, I'm ready to, to pass if mm. that's what you want but you seem to keep giving me back my life <laughs> and so then I woke up this morning and I said well I need to go to IMC and then you were talking about change and impermanency. And these songs keep coming up in my head. Everything must change. Nothing stays the same. And so now I'm, um, I'm satisfied that change must happen. And I should just sit still and let it happen. And everything will happen for the best and the good of me. Mm, so not to worry. So thank you. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Namaste. Stay. Mm. to be able to develop more equanimity about the change that's created by human beings. <laughs> and it seems that the faster it gets and the older I get, um, that that can be challenging. And sometimes I can open up to this is all an adventure and be curious, like, what will, if I live till 90, what will the world be like then? Mm. You know, how many of these predictions and things will come to pass? Which side will prevail at least in that time period? Um, and my own death, you know, my own, like what, how is this all going to unfold? But other times I just feel like I don't like it. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. want to learn a new device or I don't want there to be all these political changes or I don't mm-hmm. want the greed to destroy the environment or, you know, whatever. It, it's, I like, get exhausted with it mm-hmm. and scared sometimes. So I just have a question about that in general, how to have that 
Sickness, old age, and death, yeah, okay. Like we actually really have no control over those at some level. But we do have choice as human beings how we act in this world. And yet I don't have a lot of choice about what a lot of the human beings are doing. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Um, It's a great question. And I think it's one that many, you know, many practitioners, many Dharma practitioners wrestle with. It's like, um, I have a few thoughts. One is that um, as, as the Buddha talked about, you know, my actions are my protections. And I find that there is, f- for me, ha- I've learned to find a tremendous meaning in um, responding to what seems like huge, you know, whether it's climate change or um, violence or, you know, racism or something in that seems large and um, out of my control. It's like um, the advice that one teacher gave when someone said, you know, in response to some calamity that was happening, he said, do one nice thing for someone every day. You know, and this idea of um, having a personal, you know, sort of local response to to um, hu- what seem like huge trends and huge things, you know, can be helpful. Um, the, I mean, the other thing, and this is just the way I think about it, is that humans, um, there's a way that you know, sometimes we think about there's nature, you know, like nature, like the, the, the mountains, the trees, and then there's human beings. And, but if we remember that we are part of nature, that we are nature, and so what, what is happening in a way, um, it's hard to, it's in a way hard f- to separate what's, you know, um, I mean, just the image that comes up is that, and, I, and this is something I read somewhere that was very striking, is that when you look at what a spaceship looks like going into outer space and how, they, how they're sort of designed and, you know, they're designed for a certain reason to, to be able to actually lift off and, and go out of the planet, right? They're shaped... In a, in a way that's strikingly similar to mushrooms. <laughs> you know, what could be more natural than a mushroom, right? It's growing in a forest that's totally untouched by human beings. And then somehow we've created these mushrooms that are blasting off and going into outer space. And is that, you know, it's just interesting that what, are, you know, it's like there's something larger than maybe we even realize that is happening. Um, I don't know if that's helpful, but... Yeah, it is. And one thing that hit me when you were saying that is it's our nature to change. It's our nature to create and to evolve and 
to to destroy and create yeah. and we're just participating in all of that so all of this that we do is just part of that same play so my my illusion that that's controllable I know that's more that's yeah. that wanting not yeah. wanting the bad parts of it yeah but it's just what happens in a sense yeah, I mean, I mean, I think, I think there's, I think, I agree. I mean, I think there's a lot of truth. Like, sometimes we have this idea of like, if just we could each have our own Tesla, then, <laughs> you know, everything. If every person in the world could have their own Tesla, and then the planet would be safe and everything would be fine. And maybe, you know, may, but maybe there's in a million years, this, you know, what they say, the sun will dry up and you know who knows you know and um and but maybe we don't have to know in order to you know come back to using whatever wisdom we have whatever you know um we can't just say well in a million years it will all end so i don't have to do anything you know we each have our own um uh, responsibility you know to to act and to to act out our 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 wisdom you know and according to the conditions of our life right now and but but sometimes holding that bigger perspective you know and that i'm not i'm not recycling because um i the weight of the world is on my shoulders i am i'm responsible for saving you know stopping the sun from you know um burning up but because that because that's what comes out of my deep love for the planet for my love for other people for my love for future generations my care i want to pick up a piece of litter that's on the ground not because i think you know that's going to particularly uh change something huge it's because that's the natural you know that's my natural um there's the sense story of how how does what is it it's like there's a there's a being in 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 mahayana buddhism who has a thousand arms and a thousand eyes and it's to see the eyes are to see the suffering in the world and the arms are to respond so it's this is avalokiteshvara right you know a thousand arms then it says the question is how does avalokiteshvara respond to the suffering in the world and it's it's not that she has a thousand arms so she can take care of all the suffering but the, so the the answer is like like a parent adjusts a child's pillow in the night you know and this if you've ever been with children or been with someone and you're kind of in the middle of the night and without even thinking without even waking up you pull the blanket over the child who's cold or you fix the pillow and it's not because anyone sees you do it and it's not because you know um this is what you should do it's just this natural you know it's this natural response so so I, it's such, it's a great question and it's a, and it's the next you know what is can we let our natural response you know guide us 
while at the same time, you know, keeping a big, a wide perspective. One more. Um, It was a great question, and I really appreciate your asking the question. And, of course, I think about this sometimes, too. I sense myself to be part of some type of evolutionary process that's much bigger than me or any or human beings or even this world. At the same time, I feel that um, I really only have a couple of responsibilities. One's to be aware and the other is to choose. Beautiful. Thank you. Maybe one more, many? So I suffer from anxiety, and this is a great topic because any little thing that involves change kind of sets me off. So my whole hope is that I can live in tranquility in some way. But the first step is to really embrace and know that you're living in an in a ever-changing world. So mm-hmm. thank you for, for bringing this all up. Yeah, thank, you. thank you. There's always fire on the mountain. Is there? <laughs> Good. On the mountain. I just want to end with a couple of short ones just because I have them. Um, this is Yokan. The plants and flowers I raised about my hut, I now surrender to the will of the wind. The plants and flowers I raised about my hut, I now surrender to the will of the wind. I love this idea of the, you know, just because there's wind doesn't mean that we don't plant flowers, that we don't, that we don't take care of, of things, that we don't grow and that we don't nurture. And, and then that it, when it comes time to surrender, we surrender. We surrender. Them. We, um, maybe a good reminder for the parents. Um, and this is Dogen, last one. This is a waka, which I think is a very short poem on impermanence. So he says, The world, moonlit drops shaken from the crane's bill. (laughs) The world, moonlit drops shaken from the crane's bill. Thank you very much.